Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and this episode is an uncut audio version of our video show that's currently on the BFI YouTube channel. First, we'll be hearing from actor Ruth Maidley on the subject of diversity in ability. And later, Rachel Griffiths will be talking about her career and films, including Muriel's Wedding. Enjoy. No, not little pushes. Do big, hard pushes like that. You'll get a smoother... Yeah. Try. Good. How'd you turn it? You... One wheel back, one wheel forward. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's like rowing. What? It's like rowing. You know, one oar forward, one oar back. Exactly the same. So you need to learn how to do a wheelie. Find your centre of gravity, okay? That's the key to everything. Like this? Mm-hmm. Oh! Hey, what's going on? Are you, are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Cheers. Are you alright? I'm fine. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Hello Ruth, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. I'm so excited. Well, we're pleased to have you. Now, in Verisimilitude, you play an actor who is struggling to get work, yet is ironically training an able-bodied actor to play a person with disabilities. It's funny, but it makes a really strong point. Um, why did you feel strongly about making this? I, the first time I read the script, I fell in love with it. And I've known um, our director, David Proud, for quite a long time. And he was on my bucket list of people who I really wanted to work with. And so, so when he approached me, him and Justin Edgar, the writer, I, I really fell in love with the script. And it's a, it's a topic that I feel really passionately about. And I thought the script handled it in such a way that it was funny. It was awkward it was a really lovely way to tell a really important point and um yeah the the actors in it were just incredible so uh, it was lovely lovely job to do you say a really important point obviously the conversation about this is getting louder now would you like to elaborate why you think it's important that people with disabilities play those kind of roles the, the conversation regarding disability representation has been going on far longer than I have been in the industry. I've only been in the industry a very short amount of time in comparison to other activists and advocates who've been fighting for disability rights within the industry for years. I've been doing this like four and a half, five years, and I'm exhausted talking about it. So goodness knows how how all the other guys feel um having to have this conversation over and over again the level that if there's a level playing field that's a different conversation but there isn't the actors with disabilities still get marginalized at every single term we're told we need a name for this project there aren't a, there isn't a disabled name a disabled person can't sell the story so we need to put an able-bodied person in a disabled role to make it sell to get the point across and if we keep, if execs and people high up keep using that excuse and then critics keep 
applauding it as good representation, then people who have disabilities who are equally, if not more talented, are just going to be continually overlooked. So for me, it's all about equal opportunity to get in the room and audition. Not outcome. I would never want to get a role just because I'm disabled. And that's that's definitely not what this conversation is about. It's more along the lines of get me in the room. If I'm not good enough for the job, that's a different conversation. And that happens all the time. We're actors. That happens every single day. 90% of roles you go for, you don't get. (laughs) So it's not something, we're not going to be offended if we don't get it because we're not good enough. I'm offended if I don't get in the room because of my disability. Yeah. Are there any films or TV shows that you feel from the past have portrayed disability well and responsibly? I mean, you've been in some great ones. Um, (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Um, for, For me, I remember on... I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user, so that means that I can walk as well. And I'd never seen, until I watched EastEnders with Lisa Hammond in it, I'd never seen a disabled character be out walking in her own house, out of her wheelchair and just moving around as as she would a normal day life, you know. And that really stuck with me. I was like, I was, I think I was in my late twenties when I saw that mid to late twenties. I was like, I'm like 26. How have I never seen an ambulatory wheelchair user on TV before? And so when that really stuck with me. So when we did years and years, I was really passionate about using my ambulatory wheelchair user kind of status, if you like, as, as a way to really show this is how I move and I shouldn't be worried about I'm constantly told you're going to confuse the audience if you walk in one minute and then you're not the next well get confused then (laughs) and that's (laughs) that really stuck with me I thought that was fantastic the way EastEnders handled Lisa's character in that kind of natural way that she moves as a disabled woman not just as a disabled actress so um, that for me was great there's you know what there's so many sadly just not enough of them are on the mainstream. And I think Lisa stood out so much because it was the mainstream. I am absolutely obsessed with James Moore in in Emmerdale. I love him so much. He is such a fantastic character. He is so talented. The storyline has very, very rarely been related to his disability he's gorgeous he's talented and so those kind of things are really needed in the mainstream I feel how do you it's interesting because you referred to critics earlier and I am a film critic and you said it's the responsibility of critics it not maybe not to praise actors who are able-bodied who portray these roles that's really interesting point yeah I think critics uh, the thing for me is especially with conversations happening now about different projects coming out and um, able-bodied people still being cast in those kind of roles. For for me, we all have a responsibility and that includes critics to call out, you know what, you really missed a trick there. You could have used whoever to, you know, you could have... the, The whole conversation about needing a name, critics have a great opportunity to be able to celebrate new talent and I think sometimes it, they, they just people just fall into the trap of thinking this is brilliant. We're we're elevating disabled stories, but I don't think people in the industry, not just critics, I don't think execs, I don't think exec producers, I don't think casting. So many different departments don't actually know what good representation is or what it looks like. And I think until we have 
real authenticity to what we put out there, then it's it's just going to become a never-ending story of, oh, isn't this lovely? Isn't this great? Isn't this inspiration porn? Um, and, and we just kind of keep having the same conversations over and over again. You also worked, as you mentioned, with David Proud, who's a director with disabilities. Um, how did that inform the film and your relationship with him working? You know what, David, I mean, I say this, but he's definitely the first wheelchair user I've ever, first director wheelchair user I've ever worked with. Um, I'm not 100, I, I think he's the first disabled producer I've ever, sorry, director I've ever worked with. Um, somebody could have an invisible disability that they've not disclosed that I don't know about, but on the, on the front of it, as I as I understand, uh, David is the first disabled director I've ever worked with. And I, I didn't expect that to make such a difference, but it really did. Like I felt almost braver in my approach to the role. And I knew that he had certain expectations as a disabled filmmaker. And that just made, it made me want to do better. And I think he's such a talent anyway, in acting, writing, in, in directing. He's, he's got, he's so, he's like a three pronged attack. He's one of those really irritating people that's good at everything. And um, I was just really desperate to impress him. And given the fact that I'd wanted to work with him for so long, um, I was like, and he'd felt the same about me. I was like, what What if I work with him? And he's like, oh, well, this is a massive disappointment. <laughs> but um, so for, for me, it was really great to be able to work with him closely and really tell this important story and argue our case in a really creative, fun way. The film also shows how thoughtlessly people can behave and speak um, about being able-bodied. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but did this ring true for you? I will always forever, I'm, I'm forever the optimist and that is a wonderful tool to live, to have um, and it also can be a detriment sometimes. But for me, um, I don't believe I've ever been in a situation where people have said things maliciously. I don't think it's done out of, mal out of malicious intent. I think people are afraid of getting it wrong. And I think a lot of things come from fear and language is often something that you have to laugh about in a certain way because people don't mean things in a nasty way, but it just shows how archaic language is regarding disability. And it's really great to be asked these kinds of questions because you can have our conversations and educate people and really highlight certain types of ableist language and um could you give us an example yeah i mean in the in the film um the doctor who's seeing um the the or the lead he was he's talking about being an invalid and mm -hmm. um people often assume being disabled with being ill and that's very rarely the case um people with disabilities doesn't it doesn't mean that you're unhealthy it doesn't mean that you're poorly um that so that kind those kind of lamp bits of language are really interesting and oh i've been called wheelchair bound in 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 critics before by, by critics before so all of that kind of language where your, your wheelchair or your disability is seen as a hindrance those kind of words and that kind of language is is still really prevalent and which is why it's really important to kind of highlight that and call it out and hopefully change change it
what can we do as audiences to support this cause? And you've highlighted the fact that just seeing films like Veris Limited are really important and educational. But um, what else can people do? Again, I, I go back to the fear. I think people are frightened of how they'll feel when they watch a film with disability in it. And I think if people, and, and I think a big thing is not not be afraid having conversations. I love it when people ask me questions about this kind of stuff. I love it when people say, is this the right term to use? And I can say, yep. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it all is subjective. Some people get really offended by certain terms and other people don't mind them. So it is subjective to a certain point. But um, I would always encourage people to ask questions. Keep the dialogue open. Don't be afraid to watch something or back something or and support something just because you're not 100% sure of the political correctness of it um so that that for me is is just not being afraid to have the conversation and ask questions well Halle Berry I don't know if you saw she recently dropped out of a role as a transgender man after backlash do you feel this is all connected and that 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 move of hers was the correct thing to do yes I do I think people with any kind of who come from any kind of minority so if you're from uh, the black community asian community lgbtq women all of these things disability i think because the level the because the playing field isn't level i think somebody who is as high profile as halle berry she can afford to and should take a stand about these kind of issues and acknowledge that there isn't the opportunity for people who are transgender to be able to audition for those roles and tell their own stories. And it's, it's the argument, isn't it, that if transgender people, disabled people, if you're not allowed to audition or be put forward for roles that are perfect for you, what's, what are you going to do when there's a role that has, that's even less perfect? And are you gonna, you're just not going to be seen for that. So it's like, well, what can I audition for then? So I feel that Halle Berry made the right decision. And I do think it's all connected. I think especially with the way the world is at the moment, with so many issues being highlighted about, you know, racism, um, sexism, homophobia, disability discrimination, ableism. I think all of it is really important to highlight just how many injustices there are in the world. Um, and in our industry we have a gift to be able to put stories out there that help shape society and the way society views certain groups of people um so yeah i think it's a great time to be able to put good authentic stuff out there and really do our communities justice i couldn't agree more now tell me on that note what's next for you oh well it's one of those things where there's certain things coming up that I can't talk about. <laughs> the, the, the classic, top secret. Sorry, I can't tell you that really, really wanky thing that actors say. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm really excited that we um, finished filming The Watch, which is for BBC America, which is the Terry Pratchett 
project um just before lockdown finished filming in south africa so i'm just really thankful that we got i got that done before lockdown happened um so that's going to be coming out I'm not entirely sure when because I think COVID's pushed quite a bit of things back. So I'm, just, I'm I would imagine, you know, it'd be more next year now. But that I'm really excited for that to come out. Um, I had another fantastic project that I worked on in January, and that was a set of disability monologues for BBC Four. And that was uh, commissioned by Matt. It was curated and produced by Matt Fraser, who's fantastic fantastic advocate actor writer another one who's good at everything i really yeah. need to up my game seriously I'm, I'm i'm letting the side down but he is um he's wonderful and, and we were able to tell different stories from different decades within the world of disability and how it affected people in different decades so that was really fun to do a monologue for those and that should be out later this year and then who knows who knows what's going to happen i may never work again i know <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you will. I'm feeling confident, quietly confident, but we'll see. <laughs> Verisimilitude is available to watch as part of the Uncertain Kingdom collection now. My next guest is actor Rachel Griffiths, who has turned director with the film Ride Like a Girl. It stars Teresa Palmer as Michelle Payne, who's the first female jockey to win the coveted Melbourne Cup. What sort of jockey would you like to say? Uh, I just want to win the Melbourne Cup. All set to go for the Melbourne Cup. Stand by for the race that stops the nation. How can a horse that was winning come last? If you can go from first to last, no reason you can't go from last to first. Horse gallops with his lungs, he perseveres with his heart, and he wins with his character. You're riding slow, pick it up. I want to ride group ones, I want to be the best. Hi, I'm Michelle Payne. Uh, I'm a jockey, I'm available for track work. Who's that riding your horse, baby? A woman jockey. The girl's never going to win the Melbourne Cup, mate. Get off me! Get back to where you belong! You must be exhausted. Work twice as hard and get half the ride. It's not just about speed. It's about patience. Michelle Payton gets up the win. Well, Rachel, welcome to Girls on Film. It's good to have you. So nice to be here. Thank you for the time. Well, congrats on Ride Like a Girl. Um, why did you choose this story in particular to tell? Um, God, a big question. I think sometimes stories, you know, choose you and you don't choose them. Um, I, I, it just was captured my imagination, I think, from the very first moment it happened. Um, I'd moved back to Australia from living and working in the US for, God, almost 12 years um, on two fantastic American television shows. Brought my family back to Australia and was really, um, you know, desperate to tell Australian stories, I guess. Um, I didn't have a particularly... Um, you know, honed ambition to for that to be film. Um, you know, I'd come to have such a positive experience personally working in television, but also enjoyed, you know, the golden age of television that Six Feet Under uh, was very much a part of, where I felt female journeys um, are so often more, in, in, you know, intricately explored in the television format. So, um, but... 
um, to say that I, it's also the kind of hero's journey of the three-act structure of the film. Um, when I came across this story, 2015, I'm at a barbecue, Melbourne Cup Day, which is a national holiday for us, go figure, um, an excuse for a day off. Uh, I didn't know girls were jockeys. I didn't know one was racing that day. Didn't grow up particularly, you know, steeped in, in the track, the law of the track. Um, and that day just blew open my mind because I'm watching the race and at the um, 300 metre mark, the race caller said Michelle Payne. And I just, just, just like, I was like, what? There's a girl racing, girls are jockeys. And 20 seconds later, she wins the you know, longest, toughest, richest prize in the world, first woman to do so. And by the time she dismounted, I had already found out that she lost her mother at eight months old. She was the youngest of 10 children, um, eight girls, uh, seven girls uh, who had ridden, um, six before her. Her older sister had died after a terrible fall. Father was a trainer. The horse is 100 to 1, owned by a bunch of blokes from the bush, you know, riding against the chic and the best English and Irish horses. And it just, it was the great underdog story. I watched the girls in the room because my daughters were there. A lot of, you know, girls from eight to 16 and they were all like cheering and screaming when Michelle won. And I thought, this is a really extraordinary moment. It is an, a story you could never make up. Um, and uh, I just felt, you know, as, as, a, as a lover of the sports genre and also a child of this great sporting nation, um, we haven't really made the great sports film. Um, so I thought, I think this might be it. Well, the title also feels very significant, of course. Is, is it re about reclaiming the previously derogatory phrase, like a girl? Yeah, no, that's right. And, um, you know, even I think it's used as a sledge, you know, very recently on a football field here, you know, a guy was like, oh, you're playing like a girl. And our Australian women's AFL players who have, you know, recently started their own code, which is um, growing and getting fabulous um, audiences and finally getting a great support. I think it's only in very recent memory has doing something like a girl not been a sledge you know that's not been inferior so absolutely I, I want my daughters to think that doing something like a girl means winning so a sledge is an insult just together in English oh, I wasn't that's familiar with that one so yeah. I'm going to use that now though thank you sledge okay it's yeah, not a sledge it's a sledge okay. yeah good I, I, I would have thought that would have come from you mob over there but I don't uh, there think you go. so no, we, we, we came up with the sledge oh, congrats <laughs> now yeah. um, in, in real life and Michelle's brother has Down syndrome and you've cast two actors yeah. with Downs as Stevie at different stages of his life including Stevie herself brilliant uh, can you That's talk right. us through that casting process and the decisions that you made yeah look I had um I did have another actor in the back of my mind for Stevie who is absolutely extraordinary and um has yet to have a role in a really mainstream film, but he's been doing amazing shorts. Um, he, of course, has Down syndrome. It was never in my mind that you would cast that any other way. Um, the difficulty had we used him, and I, I want to do another 
I, I think you should he can carry a television show. This this actor is quite extraordinary. But the difficulty in using him is that it would have been really hard to showcase Stephen's professional skills. So um, so Stevie Payne was the strapper of a very difficult horse. This um, the prince is quite a piece of work very spirited very um flighty um very unpredictable um and i thought it was really important not just um to have you know inclusive you know inclusivity on our screen but to actually showcase that that day you know the best two on track were a woman and a man who happens to have down syndrome they were the best at their job in that race on that day and he wins his his little melbourne cup and she's got a slightly bigger one and then you know the owners take the big gold one away so uh, it was just so important to me that you could see his talent with the horses um, because he's like a horse whisperer and I saw him with the prince and um, I mean I, find, I found the prince quite terrifying and he would just talk to him and he'd just you know he'd go from really rearing up to, to settling down so when I heard that Stephen wanted to play himself I was like oh well that could be good um, and of course the gift of him was that he was always able to ask, to inform us on set what something was like or you know what Michelle would have done or what Patty you know how Paddy was feeling on this particular day um, and young Griffin who had never been on screen before just absolutely loved it but Stephen's from a big family so I think he loved the, the fuss of having that kind of family around um, loved all the makeup and hair girls you know always sorting them out um, and Griffin did such a wonderful job and I think, um, I mean, I had people texting me when the film was in cinemas here and, you know, we were the number one film of the year down here in Australia and people were like, oh my God, I'm in an audience and there are 10 different families with their Down syndrome brother, you know, their brothers or other family members with Down syndrome and everybody's just coming out beaming. Um, and I think what this film has really done is show what an incredible asset um, people who we may think can't do certain jobs, what an incredible asset that they are in a workplace culture, how they change the culture and how they can be really, really good at their job. Do you think having able-bodied actors for other disabilities portraying people with disabilities is ever justifiable? Because that's obviously a very big debate at the moment. Um, yeah, no, look, obviously it is a, a big debate. You go back to, you know, my left foot and, you know, there was a time when playing those roles were the kind of ticket to the Oscar. Um, I certainly think one should um, look to that community and drama schools have to do, you know, because I think that's for us in Australia, and I think maybe it's similar in England, um, a more... You know, the drama schools should reflect the societies that the drama schools live in, 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 in all their diversity. And um, when that happens, then you have skilled actors and, and, um, and there's no sense that, um, you know, that you can't find that person for the job. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, a last bastion for sure. Right. That, that's interesting. Are there any other films um, featuring actors, perhaps specifically with Down syndrome, that you admire? Um, well, the work I've done down here, uh, there's an amazing company called Back to Back Theatre and it's why I was so confident 
that Stephen would actually be able to pull it off. Um, they're a theatre company that work with professional actors and actors with intellectual disabilities. And I worked with them when I was um, very young, straight out of drama school. And my idea about ability was a hundred percent challenged by that experience because what I discovered is that the actors I was working with were more charismatic, you know, incredibly funny, um, really unique and individual in their kind of expressive gestures. And actually, you know, when you're on stage, um, some of the actors I worked with, you just know the audience aren't looking at you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I said that to Sam, I said, Sam, like, no, but they won't be looking at you on screen. And um, those Sam, Neil and uh, Stevie are fabulous together. But it just goes to show how those actual workplace experiences can change the, you know, the preconceptions that you have. So, um, you know, but I think screen is also part of changing um, how we see each other in all our abilities. Yeah. yeah, we've had films like My Feral Heart and Peanut Butter Falcon recently. And I think, again, Ride Like a Girl, it all moves things forward. And as you say, I love that heartwarming story you told about families with Downs, people in their family, just seeing themselves on screen. It's what we're talking about on Girls on Film often. You know, if you can see it, you can be it. And to see yourself reflected 100%. on screen. A hundred percent. Yeah. And exactly. And this is a walk in her shoes film, but for my purpose, like content, it is a, it, I wanted to do a film that talked to that. You know, I have two girls and, um, you know, as much as it's wonderful seeing films like Wonder Woman, you know, Wonder Woman and, um, you know, even the kind of Disney princess movies have quite an aspirational, um, you know, and films like Inside Out quite brilliantly deconstructing the interior adolescent mind. But I think um, the, that role modelling is really excited. Uh, I've had women come up to me in the supermarket and they're like, oh, ride like a girl. We loved it. We loved it. I took my three daughters. One of them wants to be a jockey. Thanks for that. <laughs> oh, no. Um, they're not exactly thrilled. The mothers of Australia are not exactly thrilled. Um, but then I've had other men come up to me and just say, you know, my daughter suddenly wants to come to the track with me and what an incredible joy it is to, you know, to share a lifetime of love that they may have, you know, been a father-son thing when they were young, um, that their daughters now can kind of see that girls at the track aren't just about fascinators, you know, that there is trainers, that there is jockeys, that there is owners, that there is breeders. Um, and and women are becoming a lot more prominent in that industry. And you can apply that to many different occupations, isn't it? I mean, I think the message of the film is partly that, yeah, you've just got to go for what you want and not be told the girls can't do it. Um, now, you once made a speech about being a bad feminist, I believe. Um, what, what's your relationship with feminism at the moment? How are you feeling about your activism? Oh, I, I, I wear it on the T-shirt now. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think I just spoke to that thing. I think for Gen Xs, um, you know, I, I do think the media and, and the forces that didn't want, um, you know, women's suffrage and women's equality to move forward, I think they did a really good job at making us feel that feminism was, you know, a bit hairy and not feminine. Um, and I think it alienated a lot of my generation. I also grew up Catholic. Um, so we were very much, you know, my nuns were incredibly ambitious for us as independents, but that word kind of, I think, um, on this side of the earth was 
quite solid but I'm you know I'm inspired by the young women of today who are owning it very proudly and calling out a lot of uh, behaviors and just saying you know this is it's too you know we've waited too long we've been nice for too long mm-hmm. so um, it's always the younger generation that push through but yeah now, you mentioned Six Feet Under, and that's one of the things that I know you best for. I'm a huge fan of that. Um, what, what, what past characters do you get recognised for the most? And what, kind, what do you find your fan base is when people stop you in the street? Uh, it's really, it, it really differs. And I can always tell by the approach. Really? You know, so particularly, if I, you know, when I was in America, I would have, you know, like a really big guy come up to me on the street and he'd go, you, you were in that movie, right? You were in the movie. And I'm like, and they're like, I love that movie. I'm like, the rookie, the rookie. That made me cry. You know, you always kind of... So I, I usually know when it's kind of a mural's wedding or a six feet under, just by the kind of way they will approach me. <laughs> um, what does a Muriel's but, wedding person come up to you doing? Dancing, singing uh, Abba? A little bit. Usually a big smile yeah. and they're like, oh my God. <laughs> so it's, if it, it starts with an oh my God, it's Muriel's wedding. Um, and for, for Six Feet Under, it's like, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I know you're with your family. Can I just say Six Feet Under? <laughs> so important to me you know? <laughs> so it always has this yeah. slightly different Busted. um yeah <laughs> brilliant yeah um, exactly what are your memories of muriel's wedding because i'm sure a lot of our viewers will be extremely fond of it um i'm gonna bring my french bulldog in he's oh, please can you hear him <laughs> i can't but he's, please bring him in he's he's making a lot of whining <laughs> so i'll just sure. bring him in Great, yes. Sorry, sorry. And a dog. <laughs> I think that might be our, this will be our first dog. This is exciting. I mean, Can we get to see him? He's very noisy. All right. Sorry, you'll have to repeat that question. Oh, <laughs> oh so cute. Hello. This is a little Monty. What's the name? <laughs> this is Monty. Hi, Monty. Oh, so cute. Quite noisy. <laughs> so it's noisy. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Muriel's wedding. Yeah, a lot of our viewers will love Muriel's wedding. What are your kind of fondest memories of making that? Well, you know, it was my first film, so I was utterly terrified, really. You know, from start to finish. Um, so between the kind of constant anxiety of thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in a movie. I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd be in a movie. Um, I, I think we're just the rare moments of, you know, connection between me and Tony, probably like the dancing scene and um, the scene, you know, very quiet scenes with us that were quite intimate, the, where you really knew something special was happening. Um, but mostly, first film, terrified. Oh my god, I've got to get rid of this dog. <laughs> it's quite loud. Sorry. Um, but my, one of my fondest memories of Muriel's wedding is um, I think it was my you know, end of my first week, and I sat down at the lunch tables, and Bill Hunter, the great Australian 
you know, one of the grandfathers of our industry, I guess. Um, he was sitting there, plays Muriel, you know, plays Muriel's dad, and uh, he's like, "How's it going, Rach?" I was like, "Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a spit. Um, I think I'm just like waiting for them." He goes, "To find out you can't act." I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> he goes, "Let me tell you something." They never find out. <laughs> and it was just the most kind of wonderful thing for, you know, he would have been a knight if, if, if we still had them, you know, sitting down with your sir, sir, what's his name, who you've grown up worshipping as an actor and, and just, you know, saying that. It was really, really lovely. That's so cute. And um, you did mention Six Feet Under and, and the TV roles being so strong for women. I mean, your character, and that was extraordinary. Um, what kind of journey did you go on emotionally filming that, you know, as a woman? Um, look, it was very, uh, certainly very intense. And, um, you know, I think there hadn't been, um, you know, I don't think there'd been a, you know, youngish female like that on television before. So you're very aware that you were kind of breaking, you know, generations of feminine tropes about what the girlfriend role in a show would look like or feel like and sound like, um, which felt kind of thrilling and, and, and perhaps terrifying at the same time. Um, you know, it's a very sexual role. I found that quite confronting. Um, and certainly at that time, there wasn't kind of a language, you know, around that. That was kind of hard to express, you know, how you might feel about um, being asked to do that on a weekly basis. Um, that was certainly, yeah, kind of tough. But it really felt like Alan was just doing such a brave thing. I mean, if you think about the archetypes, the girlfriend, the daughter, the mother, you know, they are three classic archetypes in American television and he revolutionized what each of them could be from that moment forward in in one television show so the American mother has never been the same since Frances Conway's you know incarnation of that role it just broke apart that notion of what the all all American mom you know is actually carrying inside her so yeah it was it was really exciting and we we're a very close cast um with such brilliant writers and brilliant, brilliant young directors. So, you know, Alan would bring in directors directly from the theatre or who had only done short films or small independent films. They hadn't come from a kind of television sausage factory mentality. Um, and that was also just a real gift to be working with a lot of auteurs, actually. And even though Alan is Alan is an auteur, to have these auteur filmmakers interpreting his work um, was very, very special. We were all very aware that we were doing something very special. And to speak to this moment, um, you know, Alan, Six Feet Under is a conversation about death. And it happened at a time, our first season before September 11, where... He felt death was absent from an American discourse. And in the wake of September 11, death and vulnerability, if you like, 
was all people wanted to talk about. And that's where people, a lot of people discovered the show after September 11 and their friends who, you know, had, had already seen it were like, you have to watch, you have to watch Six Feet Under. Um, and I think, I mean, I st- how, how many years ago, it is, you know, it's almost 20 years ago that I did the pilot for that. Um, and I think truly we're only in a moment now where we are actually talking about our vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, which was a radical, a radical idea because yeah. it was all about the projection of a confident thesis, you know. So amazing um, that the show has really stood up, and a lot of people are finding it in COVID. I'm getting a lot of oh, really? you know, yeah. DMs that I yeah, bet. yeah, yeah. Um, so listen, what's next for you after I Like a Girl? Are we going to see more directions from you? Um, so I'm executive producing. I produced on this. Um, and as I said, I was really looking for television stories as well. So last year, um, I co-created a television show called Total Control, uh, in which I play the support lead to uh, a wonderful Indigenous actor, Deborah Malman, one of our beloved stars. I play a conservative prime minister who helicopters helicopters in an indigenous woman to the Senate and she brings down the government. That's uh, season one. And we went to air last year and um, we're in Berlin and Toronto uh, and won the best drama of the year here. So we're currently in the writer's room for season two of that, which is super exciting. And I have no doubt that... um, it will be on UK screens by next year. We look forward to that. Well, Rachel Griffiths. Total control. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. It's been great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your support. And um, yeah, I hope uh, everyone who sees this show watches the film because it is incredibly uplifting and um, a beautiful film to share with all ages. It's a PG feminist sports film to make men cry. That was my pitch. <laughs> That's a great pitch. I love it. And it's available to rent here it's good, now. Right? Yeah, and you can own it on DVD from 10th of August. So there you go. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Rachel. Have a great day. All right. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Stay safe. Bye. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film, an HLA production, executive produced by Heather Archbold. This episode was audio produced by Tom Wally, and our intern is Heather Dempsey. Our next video show will be on Tuesday, August the 4th at 7pm on the BFI YouTube. Meantime, we have more audio pods coming soon. You're terrible, Muriel.